Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. So I'm Andrew Kirkland. Uh, I'm the winemaker here at Ruby Vineyard and Winery, uh, Hillsboro, Oregon. Laurelwood District, sub-AVA of the Chehalem Mountains, and uh, in the Willamette Valley. And I'm Rich Schmidt. Uh, it's August 9th, 2022, and we're here at Ruby. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Uh, and to get started, why wine? Why wine? Great question. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think I've had a very um, serendipitous life of food and wine, and it started with um, growing up, my, my parents loved to cook. My dad would make wine in our basement. Um, up in, This was in Seattle in the, the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, was, was first exposed to Northwest wine, you know, tagging along with them on wine tastings, on like family trips mm-hmm. to Eastern Washington or um, Walla Walla or Yakima. I had folks, grandparents in Yakima Valley, so. We'd go over and explore, and I'd run around. And it was just a thing that was always around, um, around the dinner table and kind of just in our in our lives, but it wasn't anything more or less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had an opportunity after, I dropped out of college um, in 2001 and came back with a kind of identity crisis and trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do and how I was supposed to spend my time, but I realized it wasn't um, wasn't at university at that point. And I had an opportunity to work for a, uh, a catering company in Seattle that was owned by some friends of my folks, and I was a dishwasher and um, 19 years old, and there was a chef that they had who his name's Brian Pickering, and he was British. He'd studied at Lucerne, and um, he decided, uh, little did I fully recognize this at the time, but he decided to educate me <laughs> in food and wine. And he actually ended up getting me some jobs cooking later on down the line, and um, was a huge influence. But, you know, drinking on a fake ID at 19 and being able to taste cremants and burgundies and learning learning about pairings and epoise and oysters and chablis and oysters at 19 and um, it was an impactful kind of period of time in my life and I started to get very much into cooking and food and um, at 21 I, I moved to New York City and spent uh, a couple of years in New York cooking and working at some you know some high-end like bars and then a a very fancy Italian restaurant where we had a pretty serious wine program and very generous owners and sommeliers and so every day it was you guys got to taste this Mm -hmm. and you know I'm 23 years old and I don't really have a context for what I was tasting but I was exposed to a lot of really a lot of a lot of really intriguing wines a lot of Barolos and um, Brunellos and Tuscans and Super Mm -hmm. Tuscans and and some burgundies. 
and wrongs. And that started to open my mind to it. And I came back to the Northwest and um, had started tasting domestic wines and you know, realized very quickly that I liked Oregon. And Oregon in particular, you know, reminded me of some of the some of the more old world wines and they mm -hmm. just seemed to be more intact and more interesting. They had acid and um, that was my first kind of imprint with mm -hmm. it. And then I went back to university and actually studied to be a, studied history at Western Washington University. I was going to be I was going to go to graduate school um, for to get a PhD in history and do something similar probably to what you're doing right now and uh, and a friend of mine who I'd grown up with who had studied um, history was living in France and a friend of mine who's a sh chef currently um, still a friend of a mutual friend of both of ours had gone out to stay with my friend Devin's friend in Beaujolais who was a vigneron um, named Vincent Carre in a tiny, tiny, tiny little estate called Domaine Carre. And um, Devin said, you know, before you go to graduate school, you should come out and meet Vincent and just hang out in France with us. And uh, this was in 2011, and Vincent and I hit it off quite well. And he, he I didn't realize this at the time, but he had a background. He had been a sommelier in London. Um, at a place called Bibendum, which is a very well-known restaurant in London, wine restaurant. And uh, Vincent had, you know, grown up son of a vigneron, and he kind of rejected Beaujolais because he was, we were in the south, closer to Lyon. And he had, he had staged at Petrus and a few other places, and, you know, I think he was a little bit... He didn't want to go back to lowly Beaujolais. <laughs> and uh, he, he spent the time in restaurants and decided that he would go back and convert it to organics. And I was with him probably four years after he'd taken over the domain and ended up spending a full year there from pruning all the way through harvest. And uh, it was, needless to say, it was a game changer for me, and it was changed my life in some pretty meaningful ways. I met my wife there. Um, she was traveling and um, woofing willing workers on organic farms. We met and hit it off and stayed friends. And the next thing I know, um, at the end of that year, she came to the States when I got back. And after that, I was in the Hunter Valley with her. and. Um, still making wine and learning and the rest has kind of been um, a long journey but that time at Beaujolais was tremendously impactful so Vincent and I would go tasting hmm. on the weekends um, and you know it's a tra everything's a train ride or a car ride away in that part of France so you know and we would be learning about the Rhone and he wanted me to taste the Rhone wines we'd go to Don Le Hermitage and walk around the vineyards and talk and um, go to domains and taste and think about wine and buy wine and then drink it and, you know, eat it with food, the right foods. And that, in France, that was the thing, you know, for, for Vincent was this, like the logical food that you eat with this wine and why. And 
I didn't realize it at the time, but I was getting an education in not just how to you know work in the vineyard and how to make make wine, but in the like the deep culture mm -hmm. of wine, and it had a tremendous impact on the way in which I think about wine, and feels extremely fortunate for that. Um, actually, on this last trip back to France this summer, I was able to cross paths with him. I didn't spend enough time, but we, we cross paths and you know, with the intent of, of spending more time. Um, but yeah, and then I, I, was, I was there and my, my wife Beth um, was traveling and she's, she was um, just this amazing Australian woman and we, we had an incredible kind of fast romance and then a long, um, long pen pal you know, this was before, like, fully everything social media-wise, so, um, but we could Skype, in early days of Skype, and she came to the States, and we, we decided, yeah, that was going to be a thing that we were going to pursue, and so she was from um, the Hunter Valley in, in Australia, which is just north of Sydney, and she's from an area called the Upper Hunter, and uh, and it's, it's a wine region. And so, in a very funny turn of events, we ended up staying at her parents' house in the Upper Hunter, and I worked with a classmate of hers from school. And it was a six-month internship. And then um, I knew I wanted to come back to the States, and this was in 2012. and. Um, applied to work for the Carlton Winemakers Studio as an intern and I was I was particularly excited about the studio because I'd read about it previously mm -hmm. and you know um, some of the some some of my first Oregon wines were for producers in the studio Andrew Rich and Eric Homaker and um, Lazy River and I didn't I didn't know at the time, again, how important that place was going to be for my my life and wine and career. So, um, got a, got an internship at the studio and met um, a tremendous amount of people who have been impactful on my my life and career. And you know, Kelly Kidney and Sterling Fox and Eric Robert Britton was making Lazy River at the time. And um, Andrew Rich, obviously, and I actually ended up living in a house in McMinnville with uh, it was Jeff Woodard's house, Woodard Wines, and um, Andrew Rich was living there. Our friend Jeff Katz, who was working at the studio, who works for Ken right now, mm -hmm. um, was living there. Myself, Beth, unfortunately, my wife got brought over for a brief bit and was like, this is too much. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and then Joe Pettuccini was there, who's Montebruno Wines, and it was a very fun time, um, pre-harvest and during harvest, and we would just cook food every single night and, and drink wines and, you know, drink Oregon wines and European wines, and we'd talk about it. And oftentimes they were blind, and there was lots of parties. And we were younger, and um, things were a lot looser. And 
and you'd wake up and go do harvest and come back and do the same thing again. And there was an expanding group of friends that came about in that same era, and I had a lot of a lot of very close friends that kind of, I think, came of age similarly, mm -hmm. similar time frame. Mm -hmm. And that was how I ended up in Oregon um, the first time. Mm -hmm. We'll pick that back up in a second. I want to back up for a minute. Um, you mentioned kind of fine dining as sort of the, the entry point for you into wine. I'm curious about coming out of those experiences in Seattle, New York, what, what was your what was your sort of opinion of wine? What did you think of wine? And, and did you ever imagine making wine as something you might ever want to do? It's a, I think that's a great question. I, you know, I think wine, it, there, I was of two minds with wine. Um, it was, it, it was something that was so comfortable and normal, you know, for me, like it was at every meal growing up and at the same time, it was something that I just, I didn't, I couldn't know, and, but I enjoyed. And I think that quite often people find themselves in that state in wine when they're, when they're first exploring it, where you recognize that there's something here and you enjoy it, but you can't quite get your head around what that is. And little do you know that, like, if you learn to, to, to be around it more, that that never goes away, that you just have this continuous expanding space of learning that's one of the most generous things on earth, but um, you at least have context. And I think early on I didn't have context and I knew I needed to build that. Mm -hmm. And I think restaurants were a great place for that where it, it was in a natural context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people had already done the thinking, right? You know, they, the list was thought out. There was a reason why these wines were where they were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you talked about your, your time in Beaujolais being kind of the, 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 the game changer, life, life changer for you. Tell me about the experience from an actual like work perspective. What, what was the work like? What did you enjoy about what you were doing there? And uh, aside from the, the kind of the, the fun of the food and the wine and all of that, what, what kept you engaged in the idea of growing and making wine? So I think, I think you know, I'm again, so fortunate to be with the person that I was who spoke fluent English. Um, I was there to work on my French and, you know, it, I think <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't take. Uh, but we had these just, every day was a conversation. So we started, you know, with pulling brush, which is hard physical manual labor. And we would pull brush and I would talk, we would talk. And, you know, the pace of work there is is it's a high you know there's a high output but it's you know you're working for a couple of hours and you take a little coffee break and then you you work hard for a few more hours and you take a long lunch and then you do a few more hard hours of work and maybe your day would change up but at that beginning time it was finishing pruning pulling brush and tying and it was clear how how important the work was mm -hmm. and the hierarchy of labor uh, we were pulling brush and we were the, the manual labor in that experience and Vincent and his mother were pruning and it was an amazing thing to watch highly skilled pruners prune and you can see that here every every day in the winter time but um, it's a beautiful thing and they can look at a vine and they can see 
they can see the pathway moving forward. And I think for me, that was one of the first light bulb moments was when we were talking about pruning and it being explained to me that you're pruning not for this year or next year, but you can prune for two and three years out mm -hmm. by a single decision. And you can see that on the vine. You can see the historic growth of all those decisions that have been made going back in some of those vineyards 80 years, mm -hmm. you know, 60, 40, 80, 20. But it's all, it's all right there before you. And I think that was a first kind of moment for me where my historic brain was, and cultural brain and kind of theorist brain was connected to um, the act of, of growing grapes um, as a kind of, as, an, as a cultural endeavor. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, there's a lot of science that is in this and I've been able to, to study and kind of spend the time to fill that space in, but that this is a cultural act and it's a cultural act that goes back a very, very long time. And pruning was it, you know, if that just starting to understand just those basic architectures of a vine and why. Mm -hmm. Um, started that, and so pulling. I never cut it, cut anything. I was I was allowed to tie, <laughs> um, and yet it was. It just started to kind of get my brain mm -hmm. turned on mm -hmm. to the the process, and that was our conversation. It was it was every single thing we did, we would have these long conversations about why, and or how, and mm -hmm. and then you know get that it into the Vincent's version and then I would go read and you know I had all my books and I was ordering books and I would and say well I was reading this and it says you know we we prune this way for this reason and you go, oh, well maybe like this is how we do it here and this is the reason why and recognizing that in wine that there's all these different pathways and that you know there's a it's it's endless again and you can always tweak and learn and push and that's what we've done collectively for a long long period of time so take me through your um, experience in Australia and how it compared and contrasted with that first experience yeah it's a pretty big contrast <laughs> uh, you know we were making I think 12 or 1400 cases in Beaujolais tiny 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 production like and we would have had a press that was big enough to do all of that. Um, and so, you know, I showed up thinking, having this very, very overly romantic view of the process and um, showed up and the people were amazing and we were in this giant facility, but it was a factory. And, um, and yet we still made incredibly beautiful wines. And so it was, again, that those two contrasting experiences were very, 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 very informative. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, I think to recognize that you can make wine on scale and do it really well at different price points. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time where I really, it dawned on me as a business. And, <laughs> You know, and that's, you know, the romance was still there, right? But it's not, it's a business too. And that, that experience was, was awesome because it was like four harvests packed into one because we were a large custom mm -hmm. crush facility and we were making wine from different regions. And so 
you know, every couple of weeks a new set of grapes would start to roll in. And so, you know, I think winemaking is seeing fermentation a lot and understanding where it goes and all those different pathways. And so, you know, being able to see hundreds of fermentations in in a short period of time was was pretty impactful and important. And again, that that whole dialogue piece, right? Asking questions. Did you find that even at a even at that kind of scale and that kind of pace, there was still time for that, the kind of questions and dialogue you were hoping for? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and that because we were we were very large, but we would be considered a medium-sized winery. Um, it was called Hunter Wine Services, and medium-sized winery in um, Australian terms, and. You know, it was mostly export-driven. Well, it was probably about a third domestic and two-thirds export-driven. Um, but all, you know, fermenters from like two-barrel size up to, you know, fifty thousand liters, and um, and yeah, we would have time. You know, mm -hmm. and there would particularly, you know, certain days you wouldn't, right? You'd be very task-driven. But often, yeah, it'd be these conversations about. Um, all kinds of things and and I was fortunate enough to just ask those questions and be brought into like taste trials and start to kind of get my head around just starting to understand the lab like the lab side of it and the wine science side and you know I think it's one of those places where again it's just so um, it, it's a place that has a bottling rind running 360 days a year and the lab is just constantly kind of mm -hmm. moving and it's a lot of full-time work and mm -hmm. um, people are down there who are maybe not as romantically um, involved with that process but I could see that it was a pathway it was a, it was a life way um, people had made their living this way and I again further intrigued by that but mm -hmm. yeah so I know that the, uh, the the sort of the American style of sort of separating vineyard and winery is, is, is very kind of kind of unique to us. But I'm, I'm curious at that point you'd you'd had time in vineyard, you'd had time in winery. What what was most appealing to you at that point? What were you kind of if you, as you looked ahead or thought about what you like to do or might want to do? What was what was the most intriguing part? So I think I, that's a great question. I think for me it was it was made very clear in France that there was no separation. Um, between the vineyard and winery, that you know that what you were doing in the vineyard was was going to have an impact in the winery, and what the what the winery what you were dealing with the winery was as a result of things that had happened in the vineyard, and um, and the same was true in Australia. Like you know you, you you would you didn't spend time in the vineyard, but you would absolutely see what you know the effects of weather or missprays or whatever it may be on grapes, mm -hmm. um, and there was a dialogue around that. So I think, um, you know, I, but my brain was always drawn to the middle ground and I think where, the, where those two spaces meet. And, and I think I wanted to work with people who had similar perspectives to that. And yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things, you know, that was extraordinarily for, fortunate for again was when I was an intern at the studio, was working with Eric Comerker, and uh, there would be days where I'd come in and they'd 
Lance Blossom, who was the cellar master, then he'd be like, all right, Eric's been here, you gotta go just check in with Eric, see what he needs. And usually it would be, Eric would, had been in at 3 a.m. because Eric and Lee's kids were really young at the time and he was driving them to school and he'd come in and work from 3 until 8 and then get the kids to school. And, um, and so I would get in and he'd say, all right, this is where I'm at, this is what I've done, this is what I need you to do. And, but Eric and I started conversations and um, I really enjoyed the conversations that him and I would have. And, and, and he saw, he was a winemaker who understood the vineyard as well and was very much involved in that space mm -hmm. and had a vineyard himself. And that was, to me, I, I think, again, a light bulb about Oregon, which was like, oh, you can do, mm -hmm. you can be, have a foot in both worlds here. Um, and then, you know, Eric's become a huge mentor of mine over the years. And like that, I think, you know, seeing how he thinks about it um, has very much informed how I mm. think about it, particularly when it comes to picking. And mm -hmm. you, you talked about you knowing you wanted to come back to the Northwest. Uh, I'm curious, uh, at that point, was there, was there a certain size, style, part of the Northwest that you were most excited about? You mentioned the new winemaker studio having an appeal to you. Were there other places you were looking, other places you were excited about, or something you wanted to try as you were kind of figuring out the next step? So I think it, a, a funny one about it is I loved Gamay, and that's the grape of Beaujolais, and I, the only place it would truly work is, is in Oregon, and, you know, Brickhouse, Gamay was a wine I'd sought out, and it was delicious and very good. And like, uh, I was like, oh yeah, this is this is a possible, this is the place. Mm -hmm. And then I think from Brickhouse, I, you know, Beaufort was the next logical wine to mm -hmm. taste. And I started to get my head around, um, you know, the kind of the wines of the other side of the ridge. We're sitting on the the east side of mm -hmm. the Chehalem Mountains right now, but they're you know, as the crow flies, they're six miles to our west, southwest, and, but those were the first wines where, um, you know, that the, the grape and the place, Gamay to the place, mm -hmm. made sense in mm -hmm. the same way it made sense in the old world to me. And, um, but it was, it. I mean, I fell in love with Oregon. I mean, it was in 2012, that was it. I mean, it was, my wife will tell you, like we, we ended up back in Australia for 18 months and, and all I, I just wanted to come back here so badly. And she was generous enough to give up her job at the time because so, I, was, I was given an opportunity in 2015 to come back and work after, I would, I would go back and forth. So I'd do mm -hmm. Southern Hemisphere Harvest and then come to Oregon and then do Southern Hemisphere Harvest and come back to Oregon. So I was in New Zealand and then um, back in Australia and then um, had the opportunity to work as an assistant winemaker in Australia at a place called Macquarie and another place called Wandon Valley. And, um, but I just wanted to come back. I mean, this was it. Mm -hmm. This was the place and the, the friends that we had made and, she, and she, she'll tell you now, like we, we have this incredible group of friends um, that we made in that that first year, and 
this was it. Mm -hmm. This is the place to grow grapes and make wine in the world. It was, yeah. Do you have an idea why it was so captivating to you? What, what about it made you want to keep coming back? I think the, the culture, I mean, and this is the, the thing that was so strong here was this cultural identity of we're Oregon, we're the Willamette Valley, we're making Pinot Noir. We all talk about this. We're obsessed with it, in fact, and um, and we share information. And as an intern, I could go to, up to anybody at the studio and have a conversation. I remember one of my favorite people to talk to, who sadly has passed away, is Aaron Hess. And Aaron was, you know, he was a wild. He was doing some wild things, and he was the thing that he was doing then is something that I'd love to do now, which is this kind of Jules Chauvet semi-carbonic or carbonic fermentation and I'd get to have these conversations with Aaron about he was the um, consulting winemaker for Utopia at the mm -hmm. studio and we would have these conversations like man this is crazy like this is you know this is wild you're, you're basically you're just loading this thing up with CO2 it's cryogenic it's 30 days like what you know and it was it was like we could have these conversations over weeks and mm. that was so special, you know, and I think even and when I was in Australia, there was a lot more people were a lot more guarded in their conversations. Mm -hmm. I even had my boss say we had some Americans that came to people from Oregon actually that came to visit us, and he goes, "Well, don't tell them how we make our wine." <laughs> and I was like, you know, we're doing organic, very kind of minimal input wines. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, and he's like, well, don't tell them our secrets. And I was like, what, you know, what secrets? <laughs> like, it just was a, it was a fascinating difference in culture. And I think Oregon has, you know, everyone's talks about it, but how generous the spirit of sharing is and that the creation, intentional creation of a culture of wine. And I think that that's, you know, once you start to go go down the rabbit hole and then you start to kind of see that and understand that for what it is it's it's very very special and the opportunity to learn because of that was mm -hmm. was boundless and that's why we came back so i came back to work for robert Britton, and um that's 2015 yeah said? so vince vidrine had been his associate winemaker and vince was Robert probably doesn't know this, but Vince emailed me when he was getting ready to leave and said, hey, I think there's a good opportunity for you to come back and it'd be great to, if you could. And they had hired Tresseter and Emily um, Terrell. Mm -hmm. And Em and I were e emailing and she said, you gotta come back, but you gotta be back in like a month. And so my wife very generously said, go, yeah, and I'll meet you over there and that was, the spring of 15 and I had the intent of working for them for a long time. I was their seller lead and was, you know, it was a step back and I guess career-wise from being an assistant winemaker and, um, but it wasn't at all. It was, the, that place was, Robert was, you know, he's Robert fucking Britton. <laughs> uh, he's an icon and he's one of the most brilliant people I've ever been around in wine. And that conversation in that space was it was the brain trust, you know, with, with Robert and Tress and Emily. 
and Ron would get upset because I was supposed to be doing, you know, moving barrels around, and we'd end up having, as a group, two hours of conversation after tasting four barrels before racking them. And but that's how they make such great wines in that facility, and that's how Robert's been able to be such a wonderful winemaker for such a long time. Is that 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 conversation, that thinking, never stops. And I thought I was going to be there for a long time, and then Eric. They hired Eric here at Ruby to be a consultant, and he kind of reached out to me and he said, "Hey, there's this opportunity. I want, I want to introduce you to the owners." And and Joe Pettuccini had been here making very hands-off wine. They had had some pretty serious microbial issues, and so they had hired Eric. And um, Eric said, "Hey, I I really think you should entertain this idea." And I met Stephen Flora and. Thought, yeah, this could be cool, but there wasn't anything here. It was just the barn. That's a beautiful barn, and it's dug into the hillside, and they've done a little bit of excavating. It was a tiny little facility, and there was no tasting room at the time. It was just a hole in the ground. And I remember calling Sterling, and Sterling was farming here, and I asked him his advice. And he goes, oh, no, I think you should do it. And he goes, worst case scenario, you can come work for me in a year. Uh, so... You know, took that took that chance, and it really wasn't a chance at all. I think they were taking a chance on me, really. And Eric um, was my biggest advocate and biggest supporter, and he is, was the consultant for the first few years, and was truly a mentor and like just very special, very special person to me, and you know helped me become comfortable. Um, doing exactly what you were asking about, which is that being that person that can be right on the edge of the two spaces mm -hmm. and um, learn how to manage that and grow. And we were able to, you know, that that following spring, the tasting room is finished and we started here with, you know, no one club members and um, in the, in this, well, I guess it would have been the, the fall of, tw of 2016. And we've had some very good success um, over the years, and the wines here are very special. Like the, the vines, obviously, there's really, truly old vines planted in 73 and 79. And to have the opportunity to work with those has been humbling, and um, you know, it's just, it's an incredible experience. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I think that so much of that is, again, about the people that came before and the culture that was created before. So this had been Barron Vineyard before Stephen Flora purchased it in 2012 and Bill was a visionary and planted, you know, mid-slope in the 70s and understood about the potential. And you go back, we can go back and read his notes and there were years where he was still dreaming, you know, in terms of where he was getting to on ripeness. but. Mm. <laughs> there were also years where it probably was very, very special, and he started making wine in 94 commercially, and a few years ago, well, I think it was 2018, we did a, a vertical of the Baron wines in the first few vintages of Ruby, and it really was, you could taste the place. Mm -hmm. You could taste it through each of the vintages, and you could taste the vintage and you could taste some years where, you know, the, the microbes are a little bit stronger than others. Um, 
but but it you know it's one of these things where Pinot Noir is is a great storyteller of of a place and mm -hmm. Bill saw that and fortunately I get to be somebody that carries it on on that same soil as long as <laughs> as long as we don't get phylloxera which will happen you know sooner rather than later probably mm -hmm. I think P Ponzi has a vineyard unfortunately um, the next ridge down um, or maybe two ridges but close that it, that was phylloxera in the last decade and you know it's it's always going to be a thing mm -hmm. when you're unrooted but whether it's the old vines and the own roots or not, I think this is a very special site. It's laurelwood soil, and you know, going from 350 to 410 in terms of elevation, it's due south exposure and decent exposition. And I think, you know, the wines here will, whether they're old or not, will still be very special. Mm -hmm. So I'll come back to the site in a second. I have lots of questions about this, but. I want to back up for just a moment. Before you came back to Oregon for good, I'm curious about experience as an assistant winemaker, then experience uh, sort of seller master. Tell me about the sort of stepping stones for you there, and when you were when this possibility presented itself, where did you? How did you feel confidence-wise? How did you feel skills-wise? Did you feel you could handle it? Ah, that's it. Yeah, I I did not feel um, overly confident, particularly in my wet chemistry skills, which is what I was. You know, in Australia, that's all I was doing. I was just doing very basic white chemistry because we were not a very high-tech operation. And I would do do the blending and cellar work and everything. And um, and so that, you know, a year and a half of that, I was okay, but I wasn't great at it. And, um, but, you know, I spent a lot of time reading and, taking online courses and talking to people and um, Eric assured me everything was going to be just fine and <laughs> Eric Eric actually in those first few years used to refer to me there was a character in a book he was reading um, I think it was the book was Chicago and I think it was Chicago I think that's the book and there's a character where there's a guy who was always slightly worried and um, there's a Native American character called him Worried Man, and so Eric would refer to me as the Worried Man because I would always be calling him with some question or terrified about something in the vineyard, and he'd come and we'd talk and taste and look at the chemistry and go through things. And he'd always reassure me, it's going to be fine. You're going to be all right. This is, this is great. And that is where I, my confidence came from. <laughs> and that's this, again, this Oregon piece where... Um, you know, it's, he's a consultant, but he's a mentor, right? And that's that's special. That's a pretty pretty unique thing to this place, mm -hmm. where you get brought along, you know, not just to make the wines, but to, as a person. Mm -hmm. So you'd been around a fair amount of different kind of sort of sizes and styles of wine at that point. What were you, how, how, as you were sort of looking at being someone in charge of, of making decisions and making wine, what were you sort of, how would you have defined your style or what would you, what were you kind of hoping for in terms of, I want to farm this way, I want to make wine this way, I want this to be the style of the product? So I think part of the, the part of why it worked well here is that Stephen Flora wanted, had been farming organically since um, 2012 or 
Yeah, 2013 was the first year they had farmed organically. And so I started in 16. And um, they, you know, we shared that as a, as a vision. And I, I had, was comfortable with organic farming from my experiences in Australia and in, in France. And so it, that was a natural, you know, concept to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I truly believe that you make better wine farming this way. I think that's part of why people do it. It's not, you know, it's wonderful to do it and have a certification, but you know, you do make better wine, and then maybe that's just paying attention. But it, it, it's a thing, and um, so that was a starting point. And then, you know, one of the joys of the employers—they love food and wine as much as anyone. And um, you know, that first spring I, when I was here, we would have lunch and. Steve would go into his cellar and pull out bottles, and he was pulling out lots of European wines and, and from his collection and older Oregon wines from his collection. And we would just sit and talk about wines and wine styles. And then I'd bring him some wines that I thought they might find interesting. And through that, we started to kind of come up with what they wanted to achieve. And that was pretty, pretty clear. Um, they loved Eric's wines. That's why they'd hired Eric. And, mm -hmm which is a kind of hands-off, organic, organic, hands-off, but intentional um, wine. And, you know, we will intervene and do what we need to do. Um, in the 2015s that were in barrel here, we had to do some pretty heavy lifting um, to get them into a commercial state, and we did, and they did really well, and those are the wines that we launched with. Um, but, you know, after that, it was, it really was about trying to make wines a place and, and very much thinking about that as the driving intention of the whole project. And that fit well with how, how what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to, you know, allow me to explore and experiment. And Eric was encouraging of that. And Eric was my, you know, crutch for the first few years and could help me when I needed that help. But we, you know, we were, we were in, again in this constant dialogue, mm -hmm. and it was just all of us in a dialogue about the wines and tasting and being very, very open about where we're at with them and limits and where we can go. Mm -hmm. And it's still that constant. It's still that way here. You know, it's just this the very, very fortunate to work with people who share a particular vision. And so, you know, I think from that it built, right? So we, Flora's a horticulturist, her, she has very close friends who have this big organic farm in Minnesota um, called Wiseacre, which is an hour outside of Minneapolis and huge CSA. And they've got their own restaurant in downtown Minneapolis and Dean's an incredible farmer. And he's the one who started us on no-till and regenerative. and. You know, they, his farm, the University of Minnesota is out there doing research on how much topsoil they're built, they've built over the last decade and through rotational grazing and not breaking the soil. And so, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of conversations led us to go down that practice, those practices here and, you know, farming organically, not breaking the ground for, since 2017. Wow. Um, we dug some pits this year and you could see just the incredible airiness to the soil, 
was full of soil, full, absolutely full of moisture, um, but it was light. And it was, you know, one of these things where, and he was out and he, he goes, I know you're excited about this now. He goes, just wait five more years. He's like, it's gonna get cooler. And, you know, I think that with these old vines, that's our responsibility, right, is to kind of be the stewards now of this place. And that's the, that was the evolution and thought. And, you know, I think I, I did, dealing with old vines was something where I felt so fortunate and I just didn't want to, didn't want to let them down. And so it was one of these things where, you know, trying to do right by that and not put too much of a thumbprint down mm -hmm. and trying to hear what the vineyard was going to say and from there kind of allow us to push in directions that we think are interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that process um, has been great and I, you know, I, it's, yeah, I mean, it's one of these, this great joy in my life, you know, the, the idea that um, you can, you can try and take the ego out of it and you just let this thing happen and it's this little dance with the world and nature and the vintage and everything else and and then you gotta sell that stuff. That's a whole nother ball game. And we're gonna talk about that. That's on the that's on the list yeah. to talk about here in a second. But I'm curious about we you've talked you've kind of talked a little bit about the site. We talked a little bit off camera about the site. But give us a quick kind of recap of the history of this yeah. place and what it looked like as you mentioned, kind of what it looked like as you walked into it. Yeah. So I mean, Stephen Flora bought it in 2012 from Bill and Sharon Barron. Fortunately, Bill had Parkinson's and passed away in 2016. Um, and I never was able to meet him. I've met Sharon a few times, and um, I've tasted his wines and read his notebooks, and um, I've had good conversations with people who knew him, you know, both in wine and outside of that. But um, but he was a visionary. You know, he he the, he planted. There's seven acres of of vines planted in 1979. Um, it's predominantly Pomard planted Riesling and uh, Chardonnay as well, and then top grafted those to 115 in the 90s when Dijon clones were becoming ubiquitous. And that was the right business move for him at the time. Sadly, I wish we had three acres of old wine Chardonnay Riesling, but um, you know, you can't always win. Uh, <laughs> no, but Bill, Bill was, he was, he saw something that I think a lot of people didn't write in this area mm -hmm. on, on the Laurelwood soils. Um, and he was part of the Tektronics um, engineering winemaking group. And he bought the property from a gentleman who just passed away, um, John Hestad. And John had bought vines from David Lett in 73. And they were cuttings from the Irish South Block and the Vadensville Clone 1A, I believe. And John put them in the soil, and then when Bill bought the property to plant, apparently, this is all kind of legend, but apparently Bill didn't know that they were there, even though he planned to plant grapes. And he was clearing a blackberry patch and happened to uncover these six-year-old unkempt vines. So he trellised them and laid them out, um, properly put a proper trellis up, and they're still sitting over there to this day. They make a tiny tiny bit of wine and it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but Bill 
Bill started this, and then his close friend Dick, Dick Tungi and Suru Tungi um, bought the property next door, and they had helped plant, helped him plant this vineyard, and then they planted their own um, acreage over the years. They were a little bit slower at developing it than Bill was, uh, and then Dick developed what is now the was is Benza, but was the Bailey property. Um, and slowly but surely, there, you know, there's 30, 30 acres put in the ground here. And, but we're, we are on our little own little island. We're away from a lot of the other parts of the valley. Mm -hmm. You know, Ponzi's over here, and they've got a significant acreage. And Dion is one of the, you know, original vineyards, and they're up the road. Um, our dairy's here, Raptor Ridge. But, you know, sometimes we're the forgotten the forgotten part of the valley, but I think the the ground here is really special. The, ter the soil is is very conducive to making beautiful wines, and it's you know laurel wood, luss, so it's windblown soil um, over over different volcanic material, but mostly jory. Mm -hmm. um, and then the varying depths, like right where we are here, it's very very shallow. The lower wood's probably only five or six inches, and the clay is very, very, very little beneath that. And there's bedrock right at the surface. Um, and then you go up the slope, and it's deep. It's six, eight feet deep of lower wood. And you come to the edge here where it's falling off, and it's very shallow, and it's, there's jewelry right at the surface. So you have these kind of varied soils with varying depths, and it makes great Pinot Noir. And a pie, it makes very good Chardonnay. <laughs> and it's, you know, some, I think part of that is some of the higher slopes may have more clay in it than down here, but, yeah. So from, from your perspective then, with, with all, given all that history, tell me about your sort of, your experience getting to know this place and, and getting to understand all of what you're telling me and getting to understand what you get from where and what you can kind of hope to do. How long does it take you to get comfortable and what, what is the kind of the method to, to understanding a place like this? So I think that's a, yeah, that's, that's a fun question. Uh, that's, that is, we're still getting to know it, right? Every year it's like something new is being learned um, or not something, many things. <laughs> uh, so initially, you know, it was, there was, a, there was a logic to it, I think for me at least, which was, it also coming off of the 2015s, which were a bit of a, there was a struggle, you know, and there was a lot of work in the cellar. They had Pedicacus and Brett and, you know, a lot of incomplete fermentations. And so there was a lot of work done to get those wines to a saleable place. And then um, in 16, it was conservative, but it was conservative in that, like, let's get to know the vineyard and the vintage cooperated with that as well. And so we were able to kind of pick it out. Um, it became very clear in 16 that the top and the bottom were, were ripening on different curves. And that's probably for a handful of reasons, but there's a difference in a matter of a few days, but that those few days matter. Hmm. And, um, you know, in terms of sugar ripeness and in phenolic ripeness and in acidity. So, that was clear in 16, and we had picked in 16 on basically two big picks. 
starting at 17, we decided to kind of break it down. And we fermented all those pieces relatively close to where they were coming off the vineyard. So we had an idea of what each piece was giving us. And then in 17, um, there was a large crop. And so we decided to really take the vineyard apart. And so we, you know, started picking off sections. So you pick, pick out the top and you pick off the sides, leave a core in the middle, pick out the bottom later. And so we picked it over five picks, which is wild over like eight acres, right? You know, um, pain for the management company and the crews, but wonderful for us. Um, and that gave us a pretty good vision of like, mm -hmm. what, how to, how to approach this. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, and in 18 we did something similar, but then you have in 19 where the weather really um, starts to play a role and we, we hung on as long as we could. Um, but you had to kind of move for, because nature was pushing you a little bit. And so instead of doing it over four picks, which is what we had done, four or five picks the previous two years, we had to do it in two and, and then, you know, ferment them Mm -hmm. separately but you st I think from 19 was a year where I really started to feel comfortable with the vineyard um, and you just start to you know I, I'm fortunate to be here every day right and I I get my the winery is on the vineyard and I literally step out of the door and I'm here so every day of the year winter spring summer except unless I'm away like I get to see the growth and mm -hmm. so I think through that I get to kind of be in things become clear and this is something who Mary Claire is our seller at lead and she works in the vineyard and we, with us as well. We, everybody works both ways. So mm -hmm. Louise who works 70% in the vineyard and 30% in the winery, Mary Claire is the inverse of that. And I'm somewhere in between. Um, and it's something we talk about all the time is just like the, um, the ability to see something in the spring that's going to have an impact in the fall is something that it's important to start to pay like just keep your eyes and ears open mm -hmm. to that stuff mm -hmm. and i think you know in a year like this where we had the frost um it's we did a lot of early surveying of damage and then tracking of that mm -hmm. And Steve's funny. He goes, well, it's, why do we need to track? It was terrible. It was a horrible thing. But it actually helped us kind of have an understanding of where in the vineyard there's damage where there wasn't mm -hmm. and what that may have an impact later on in terms of ripening, what our percentages are. And being able to see that over, like, longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. Just little things like that where a vineyard becomes... It's, it's just right here. Mm -hmm. You're in it. So you talked earlier about the, the sort of the business aspect. Of course, once you have the wine, you have to you have to do something with it. So tell me about the the evolution of that and, and your role and and how how things have gone in that in that regard. So yeah, it's funny because you know first few years coming going back and forth um, between Oregon and Australia, like. In the shoulder seasons, I'd work in the tasting room, and I worked for Woodard. Um, 
and he's he could sell wine to anybody. Um, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, but you know, realized very quickly, and with conversations with friend friends and colleagues who were like, you know, that that was the that's the hard part, right? You know, like you you got to get it. You can make it. Selling it and selling through it is is where you got to really put in the effort and time and. Mm -hmm. You got to cultivate these relationships and friendships and networks, and um, and we were fortunate enough here to. Steve and Flora knew that you know building this tasting room was going to be important, and it was one of those situations where if you build it, they will come. Kind of ideas, and so when I started, we were talking about wine style and fixing the 15s and being involved with the bothering Sterling while he was farming and um, and then yeah like how do you want I would ask them questions how do you want your tasting room to, what do you want the experience to be mm -hmm. and I was able to kind of just be that person that helped prompt some ideas mm -hmm. for them and we kind of conceptualized the wine club and Steve came up with what he thought was going to work in terms of tiers and he was very very generous and with his club discounts and some other things but we're we're close to a lot of people here, right? We're because we're on this east face. We have there's Hillsborough and Beaverton are just down the road, Sherwood's, for, you know, to the south, and so there's a lot. Of, and we're only 40 minutes from downtown Portland. Mm -hmm. Traffic's good, and so um, we have all the pieces, right? And we're not on the main drag, but we we have a lot of people close, and we were able to go from zero wine club and 16 to over 700 now and um, that's been the growth of the business that's that's driven it we're about 85 percent direct and very fortunate and happy for that particularly when COVID happened and mm -hmm. we've had some very good people to, who've worked for us um, over the years just in being kind of our wine club people and they've they've built relationships and friendships and um, Steve and Flora have been, you know, very big about being present and meeting everyone. I think they signed up the first, you know, 150 wine club members, and they're they know everybody on some capacity, and they're here all, every day of the week working that that space. And um, you know, we just did it collectively. But that's, you know, we're tiny. We're, we're 3,500 cases to 4,000 a year. And we're, we have the, the, the luxury of being on a small space. Mm -hmm. But it allows us to do other things like em, employee, you know, have, have full-time employees that work in the vineyard and the winery and mm -hmm. keep, keep people like a living more than a living wage and, and good people health care. And, and that's things that are all important to Stephen Flora. Um, mm -hmm. I've built this kind of foundation that we're able to stand on. So I feel very fortunate to be a part of that as well. And learn that, you know, Steve's, Steve's a very, we're both very smart people and Steve's been a sole practitioner attorney for 40 years and had to, had to figure it out. So it continues. Just a different kind of small business. Mm -hmm.
you brought up 2020. I'm curious about your experience, both uh, from the pandemic perspective and from the 2020 harvest perspective. So take me, take me through 2020 from your eyes and what were the biggest sort of issues you faced and what were the biggest decisions you had to make? So I think 2020 was great um, in terms of seeing how wonderful our wine club was. <laughs> they kept us alive. They, they were wonderful um, supporters. And they were they bought a lot of wine, and that's and we stayed in business. Um, you know, on, I think the beginning of March it was like, what are we gonna do? And um, I was panicking well before beginning of March, but I'm just somebody who's like, as Eric Eric knows, I've, as I said, like panic worry man. Like I was like, this is gonna be a big problem for us in February and everyone in the office is like what are you talking about and I'm like oh, it's going to be a problem like, so we started to make plans a little bit earlier and we had a conversation at the end of February um, and Steve said I'm not going to fire anybody we're going to keep everybody employed can they work in the vineyard said, sure and so that's what we did we took our tasting room staff outside sales person um everybody became our controller everybody worked in the vineyard and that's how we got through the spring and our wine club um carried the weight and we're forever grateful for that and then you know felt like we got our feet back under us and started working with our management company again and then this then the fires happened we're a mile and a half here from where the Shalem Mountain Fire started in the canyon. So we had a very good view of that experience up front, up close and personal, and watched all that smoke get blown over the hill, watched the fires, the flames get blown up the hill, and watched it get put out, but also saw the wall of, um, yeah, like Mordor over, over that direction. Um, and so that, you know, that was a terrifying experience. I mean, it was like legitimately scary. Uh, and it was something where, you know, again, Oregon came together as we do. And everybody was, I just remember being on the phone the whole first few days, texting, calling, and everyone's sharing numbers and talking about what they're seeing and, and you know, I think it became clear to me that we were in trouble here when the when the initial fire was put out and the smoke settled and you could you couldn't see the end of the vine rows. Um, I was like, this is not going to be a good good thing. But we did we 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 picked the vast majority of our fruit and um, we made them into different wines and we we made all of our spring wines and did a lot of work doing using products and doing things that we'd normally wouldn't use um got them into a good sellable place and without too much intervention and we made brandy out of our pinot noir and so you know it was something that i'd read about in australia prior prior there was people in tasmania that had done it there's people in south australia and victoria that had done it and the key was that you don't use any sulfur and i was already intrigued by low sulfur winemaking have been so you know reading up on that i was feeling confident that we could could at least get to um a stage when you would sulfur them without 
post mellow without using sulfur and the fruit the vintage was amazing you know the fruit was going to be phenomenal so we made we made the majority of our pinot on sulfur and all the way through and it was beautiful until it wasn't and um then we worked with a distiller actually up out of forest grove and we turned it into brandy and we got a distillation or well a spirit holders license mm -hmm. and we have you know 125 cases of 2020 brandy um that we'll at some point dip into created problem solving yeah and no smoke in it because it was again you know sending papers to the distiller saying okay like this is what they're saying in australia these are the temps and he was doing his research like we find a tiny bit in these wines and we were able to get it through and it's clean it's it's delicious brandy it's a little phenolic but time will sort that out i hope yeah but creative problem solving and I, you know so much of wine is that right it's this improvisation you know i think oftentimes we want to we, we have intent we always have intent with everything we're doing but um so often it's the improvisation that is where where it really happens and that's you know improvisation is a fulfillment of the intent right it's just in a different way than you thought you've talked about all of the kind of the, the the growth of the of the brand since you've been here tell me what are the in your mind as you look back what are the biggest sort of steps or accomplishments or, or goals reached for you and and for ruby since you've been here and what is the next mm. one or next ones you're looking at you know i yeah i i think for the first few years it was just like get everything stable right and and grow as a person and as a winemaker and um and now you know for ruby we've become um a, a cash positive business and that's huge in in this world and um i'm extremely proud of that and i'm extremely proud that we have employees a lot of it you know feel like a lot it's not a lot for us but for a small business it's a lot of employees who were still we were able to give people a pathway to a solid life mm -hmm. um with with selling wine growing grapes and selling wine mm -hmm. and it's you know that that's the thing i'm most proud of to be involved with that and help help facilitate that one mm -hmm. steven flora but you know yeah i think being an ipnc this year like we we tasted in in with our for for the 2020 and it was delayed um and you know i i love wine and, I, and i'm just deeply passionate about it and um it's my life in some ways i've learned to put boundaries up around where that is but um you know food and wine have been important to me and that event is was important to, mm -hmm. to see that through and the fact that Riri was featured this year was was just awesome mm -hmm. and it's like you're up there with you know i was on a panel with brian marcy from big table farm and eric kramer and like like uh, I, I, these guys are like uh, i can't believe i'm sitting next to them you know like i and that's and to be there with with everybody it was mm -hmm. just special mm -hmm. you know, it's like it's a 
it's a very cool thing to see Ruby grow into that, and be able to, to be in a space that's respected by its colleagues and by consumers, and feels like we've grown up, and that makes me proud. Mm -hmm. So for Ruby, we'll start with Ruby first. What comes next? What are the, what are the next big steps you're looking ahead to? So we're, yeah, we're gonna just steadily grow. I mean, I think that's one of these conversations that we we have all the time. It's like, what is what's the next move? And um, you know, I think we've we've started some conversations with some of, with our neighbors who are who are getting older. You know, been doing it for forty years, who are probably going to be retiring and they want to keep they want to keep their vineyards and so we'll probably take on more of the farming so this year I took started managing Ruby the vineyard as well mm -hmm. um, and we'll probably grow that part of the business and manage for our for our growers if they want us if they'll have us um, which means you know kind of converting some of those vineyards to organics fully and um, bring them into live and yeah um, and that's you know that's the farming winemaking side and maybe eventually we'll get a barrel hall a different barrel space or a fermentation space but we'll you know cross those bridges down the line um, but yeah I think just the idea there, right now we're at this place where I think there's a lot of gratitude for where we're at and what the last few years have been, it's been like a really heavy lift just to establish the brand and get through 2020 and these other things. And it took a lot. I had, you know, I was, believe it or not, it wasn't gray <laughs> when I started this job. So, uh, you know, it's it's taken a lot, but we're, we're, I think the theme right now is take a deep breath and enjoy it and keep growing slowly. You mentioned earlier, of course, that, that Eric has been sort of your biggest sort of mentor and, 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 and consulted here for a while. You also, I, I know you've, you've also consulted at projects outside of Ruby, so I'm curious for, uh, how, that has, how that has translated for you to be, go from sort of mentor or mentee to mentor, and, and, and how, has it, how has your work outside of Ruby uh, kind of sort of come along? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, we've been, well, Benza's been our client now for the last you know, since 2017. Um, and that's been, that was a sparkling project and I never made sparkling wine and that was, um, that was interesting. I learned a tremendous amount about winemaking broadly and mm -hmm. white winemaking in particular and it's certainly informed how I think about white wines and particularly Chardonnay. Um, but that experience has been, for the most part, good. And I think it's something where I think back to things that Eric would say to me, and or, or th and I would think about thoughts I had, you know, six six years ago, seven years ago with Eric, where um, I'm like, how is he so calm about this? And and being maybe in the inverse of that now, and going, yeah, it's gonna this. There's a pathway here. We'll find a way, and. Um, you know, watching that business grow up and being that person to kind of help and give, share information and um, ideas and visions and, you know, designing a winer. I, I designed, they're, they're in the process of building it and, um, you know, they're 
it's going to be a winery that's, you know, we could have maybe built it a little bit bigger, but I think when the project started, it wasn't, intent wasn't to, to grow to where they're probably going to grow to. Um, but we, you know, it's going to be a 4,000 case, 5,000 case winery and beautiful barn conversion. And to be involved with that was awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like one of those things where you're asking me to, you're asking my opinion about what you want to do here and the architect's going to draw this. This is very cool. You know, this is, um, no, but it, again, it's just, it's all of it is about the experience, right? The journey. And we're all on it. And I think, you know, I've been fortunate to watch Eric go on his journey and he's brought me along and hopefully I can do the same thing with somebody else. I think, you know, that's, I, that's another thing I'm proud of is like Mary Claire who works for us. It's a rock star. She did her first harvest in 2019 and then got stranded in New Zealand and she came back and she's works for us full time now. And she's going to add Chemeketa and, and she'll probably go do some more harvests elsewhere in the world and she's going to be a kick-ass winemaker at some point and like that's going to i'm going to be i'm proud of that you know you can just tell that she's going to kill it so it's like yeah so what comes next for you then uh, as you look ahead for yourself uh, are there other things you're looking ahead to uh, uh in wine or otherwise Ah, I think often there's dreams, right? Dreaming's free. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, 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 there was, I would be lying if I said there wasn't times where I thought maybe I would move on from this project, go on to something else. And my wife and I talk about that, you know, moving back to Australia and doing something down there. But, um, you know, I feel, I feel like one of the luckiest people in wine to have, even though it's, we're just a tiny little project here, um, I, I found a second family and um, I've been given this opportunity to, to be a part of this project and help grow this up. And it's hard for me to think about other things than this even currently. And I think I will at some point, maybe, but this is, you know, this has been, it's given to me so much and I just feel immensely um, tied to this place, like literally to the to this vineyard and to the people. So it's like it's hard for me to, you know. I think at some point there will be there will be things, but they'll reveal themselves in good time. You talked at length about the sort of your initial impressions of Oregon wine and 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 of its of the sort of the ethos of the place that you've been here. Uh, are are there changes you've seen in the industry since you've been a part of it, and what and what are the what are the sort of I guess the biggest ones, and where do you see it going next? Yeah, that, I think you know I. It's funny because I think I was here at the tail end of a certain moment in Oregon wine, and probably from the late '90s and through the late 2000s and early 2012, and I got to see just a glimpse of what that time was like. And I've been here for most of my career has been in the, that next iteration, but I, I'm, um, that, that earlier iteration was pretty cool. And then, and, and I can imagine that they were saying the same thing about the, the finders, you know, and I think, um, 
So it's going to be all right, no matter what happens to Oregon. But yeah, things Oregon's growing. It's a, um, it's a, it's going to be a different landscape, and that's okay. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's like all things. There's this evolution that happens, and you know, there's different stages, and there are good things and there's bad things that come with that. And I'm sure that each, each era in Oregon's history has had that. As you look, look ahead, are there things you're hopeful for in the upcoming years or the things that you're fearful of in the upcoming years for the industry? Yeah. I mean, I think climate change is, is a real deal problem and we, we all see it every, I know every one of us sees, sees it every day. Um, and, you know, I was in France this year and I was in Australia and both places have been dealing with preposterous weather. Um, and the French said, you know, that their first real frost was in 2016 in Burgundy and had them every year since. And Champagne, the conversation that we had there with a the grower was get used to it. You know, this is these things are going to continue to happen. So I think that that's that's a thing that does keep me up. Also, I know that, you know, we're doing tremendous amounts of research at OSU and other universities around the world and people are figuring out ways to adapt. And so we're going to be, we'll be okay, but it's, you know, smoke's scary. Fires are scary. So we're to ask you uh, for advice or words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry. What, what would you tell them? Do it. Jump in, you know, jump into it. And um, some, of the, some of the greatest people I've met in my life have been in this, in this business and people I just love. And, you know, it's from owners of businesses down to cellar hands and vineyard hands and people working and everywhere in between. It's just a very special set of people. So go for it. And open your, you know, open your heart. I think that's the big one. Lead, lead with your heart and you'll be all right. Pretty fantastic advice. I like it. Uh, all the questions that I have for you, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? I, mean, we talk, I talk so much that, <laughs> you know, we covered it all. Barely even. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality here on this beautiful day in the vineyard. And uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.